Greetings, greetings, fellow Who-gazers. Welcome to Doctor Who Literature, the new podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and this is a special bonus episode. Today, we'll be talking about Survivors of the Flux, Barry Letts, Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, Terence Dix, and Doctor Who's long-forgotten 40th anniversary special. At the time of recording, the most recent televised episode of Doctor Who is Survivors of the Flux, new series season 13, episode 5, Flux chapter 5. Whew! There was a lot to discuss about Survivors of the Flux. Yaz, Dan, Kevin McNally glow-popping in search of a lost ancient artifact, Vinder, trapped by the Ravagers, Bell and Carvanista, joining forces, Tech Tayun, delivering to the Doctor a lengthy series of expository passages about the long-lost relationship between the two of them, and how the cliffhanger suddenly turned that relationship on its head. Yeah, we're not here to talk about any of that today. I refer you to the excellent Trap 1 discussion on the same episode. I want to talk about something else. Another plot thread running through Survivors of the Flux was the Grand Serpent, played in sinister yet charming fashion by the White Streak in Craig Parkinson's hair. We learn that the Serpent houses a deadly CGI snake in his spine, and his acolytes have poorly drawn snake tattoos on their wrists. So, assuming that plot thread reaches its inevitable conclusion with Episode 6, we may have to come back and talk about the revelation, if that's what it is, tomorrow. Hardy har har. But what the Grand Serpent was doing in Survivors was insinuating himself into the history of Unit from 1958 up through the present day, from Unit's founding up until its dissolution. And in a seemingly throwaway scene set in 1967, we get this double barrel of old time continuity references to both 1966 The War Machines and the recycled guest voice cameo of a long-deceased, but still-beloved, classic series character. If I'd known at the beginning that this would occupy nearly a decade of my life, I might have had second thoughts. Whereas you, Prentice, barely look a day older. What's your secret? Clear conscience, sir. <laughs> I like that. That's our new corporal. Brought him in after we missed the whole thing at the post office tower. He's a shouter. He's very good. Keeps everyone on their toes. Wait a minute now. Corporal what? Since when do corporals lay in airstrikes from the RAF? Since when do corporals, lower-ranked, non-commissioned officers, become colonels and then brigadiers in less than 10 years' time. Doctor Who's most famous NCO, Sergeant Benton, topped out a warrant officer, and it took him six seasons to get from corporal to regimental sergeant major. Seems unlikely, minus a transfer to officer school and a really, really generous patron, that our Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart really did progress from corporal to colonel in as little time elapsed between the War Machines and Web of Fear. Fortunately, we have alternate histories with the Brigadier to rely on. We learned in the novelization of Planet of the Spiders, which will be coming up for discussion on this podcast in a few more months, 
that the brigadier was a subaltern, that usually means a lieutenant, or lieutenant, back in the day. And what you probably didn't know is that in 2003, the depths of the wilderness years, Doctor Who's official 40th anniversary story was a joint novel between Barry Letts and Terence Dix called Deadly Reunion. What's that, you say? You've never heard of Deadly Reunion? It was one of the later past Doctor adventures from BBC Books, long after the line's main readership had faded away, or drifted over to Big Finish, perhaps, or just plain old forgotten about Doctor Who. Right about the time Deadly Reunion hit the shelves, Scream of the Shalka came out, and so did the news that someone named Russell T. Davis was bringing Doctor Who back to the small screen. And when the book was published, nobody cared. On Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Doctor Who novel rankings, housed on his excellent website, A Brief History of Time Travel, and the rankings closed in 2006, after the 8th Doctor and past Doctor book lines shut down for good, Deadly Reunion is squarely in the middle of the pack of the PDAs, but only garnered 21 review votes, making it the 5th least reviewed book on the entire list, and a far cry from the robust 150 or so votes according to the first couple of dozen PDAs. Oh, and the reviews on Stacy Smith question marks, the Doctor Who ratings guide, are mostly murderous. Except for one. Except for mine. Most of my episodes of this podcast so far have been my reading out lightly edited transcripts of my old reviews or blog posts. I'm going to do something slightly different for Deadly Reunion. I'm going to jettison all the references to Mad Men in my original ratings guide review. Now, those were a harmless indulgence on my part, but they're not relevant to the point that I'm trying to make today. Now, what I'm saying is that regardless of his demotion to Corporal, which is not Officer Track in Survivors of the Flux, we already have a very good history of the Brigadier in Doctor Who literature which tells us that he was never a corporal, never a non-com, never an NCO. He was a career officer, and his past adventures were brought to us most distinctly by Barry Letts. And those adventures are pretty charming, even if the book itself is no Doctor Who and the Crusaders, even if the book is, let's face it, no Doctor Who and the Power of Kroll. You might say it's really unleashing the worst fan tendencies to make a whole podcast episode out of one stray reference in Survivors of the Flux to the Brigadier having once been a corporal, and you'd be right. I'm here to praise Lethbridge Stewart, not Barry Chris Chibnall. So let's talk about Deadly Reunion. that Deadly Reunion is not a beloved book. It came along during the death throes of the past Doctor Adventures. By the time this book reached us, in November 2003, a very muted 40th anniversary celebration for Doctor Who, Russell T. Davis was already at work on the new series. And Deadly Reunion was authored by two dinosaurs from early 1970s Doctor Who, Barry Letts and Terence Dix, two former titans, whose recent novels had been far, far less than divine and immortal. See every other review above mine on the ratings guide for a discussion of just how bad most people thought their earlier past Doctor books had been. 
For me, however, Deadly Reunion is something unexpected. The best kind of nostalgia. That's nostalgia in the literal sense of the word, the pain from an old wound. For me, that wound is my all-encompassing Doctor Who fandom of the mid-1980s, where just about every book that I read was authored by either Barry Letts, the novelization of The Demons, and Terence Dix, the novelization of, oh, uh, just about everything else. Reading their target novelizations even today, nearly 40 years after I first discovered them, transports me effortlessly back to my childhood. The mere fact of reading Deadly Reunion, with those two authors' names on the cover, is going to put me in a good place, completely irrespective of whether or not the book itself is any good. From a strictly critical eye, of course, the above reviewers are right. This ain't a good book. I appreciate, of course, what Barry Letts is trying to do. His half of the book is a post-World War II travelogue for the Brigadier. At this point, still Second Lieutenant, or Lieutenant, Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart, on an espionage mission for His Majesty in the Greek Isles of 1946. Alistair, soon to be married, has an affair with the Greek Islander, who turns out to be the goddess Persephone, and a trip to the underworld is soon to follow. Letts's prose is clunky and objectionable, and if his name wasn't Barry Letts, probably could not have been published as is. There are so many ham-handed references to sex and other things out of tune with the televised Pertwee-era atmosphere. Letts had used up all his literary credit in the novelization of The Demons, and his later books were just kind of painful. So, too, is his half of Deadly Reunion. On the other hand, the adventure he tells is great. This is Letts writing his autobiography in novel form. The About the Author page at the back informs us that the quotidian portions of the Brig's Greek island adventures are drawn from the author's own life. The Brig? Interacting with Greek gods and goddesses? And trying to swim the river Styx? Taming Cerberus by scratching him behind the ears? Sailing with a group of corgi, good-natured British sailors? The prose ain't top-notch, but the storytelling is tremendous fun, in a way that the previous five or six past Doctor adventures before this one were decidedly less than fun. Here's the back cover blurb. Second Lieutenant Lethbridge-Stewart gets more than he bargained for when he is assigned to check the mapping of Greek islands at the end of the Second World War. Even if he lives to tell the tale, will he remember it? Years later, Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart and his colleagues at UNIT investigate a spate of unexplained deaths and murders. Meanwhile, the Third Doctor and Joe are caught up in strange events in the small English village of Hobbs Haven. As preparations get underway for a massive pop concert, a sinister cult prepares for a day of reckoning. Business as usual for UNIT. But can the Brigadier help prevent the end of civilization? His friends and colleagues are not so sure because this time, the Brigadier has fallen in love. In Chapter 1, Letts draws on his World War II experiences to write a languorous memoir of the young Brigadier's post-war intelligence excursions around the Greek Isles, as escorted by the men of the Royal Navy, including an actual corporal, Ned Clark, not Chris Chibnall's idea of a corporal. Young Clark is not going to land any airstrikes from the RAF, after all. The book begins, in media race, with the young Brig and his corporal kidnapped by enemy guerrillas, and then flashes back to a comedy of manners, with the Royal Navy men manning Motor Launch 951, that's ML 951. 
the brig's mission is to update His Majesty's maps of the Greek islands in preparation for an upcoming shooting war with Russia. It's sometime after August 1945, as somebody remembers VJ Day. The ML-951 men mostly languish about, telling bad jokes and sipping ouzo, which Let's describes as the aniseed aperitif that can take the skin off your throat. The island of Xanti is presided over by a Mrs. Demeter, and stop me if that name helps you figure out just where all this is going. Let's is probably speaking from experience when he writes of young Lethbridge Stewart's ennui while helping clean up after World War II. For a while, Let's writes, it had seemed that the regiment would be involved in fighting the communist rebels in the north, but domestic politics back home had put paid to that. Coming from a long line of soldiers, Alistair had been brought up with tales of daring and heroism in battle as part of his life, as familiar to him as his breakfast porridge. And now, he thought gloomily, he had had to choose between the life of a glorified policeman as part of the occupying force, punctuated by the rigidity of peacetime regimental etiquette, and the aimless chore of checking maps. Elsewhere, Let's writes, all the authority of generations of empire was in Lethbridge Stewart's voice. And yes, that's Empire with a capital E. In Chapter 2, Let's continues to write an account of the Briggs and his unit's capture escape capture on the island of Xanthinkos, with the odd involvement of Mr. Meter and Persephone as their charming and supernatural captors. Chapter 3 flashes back to the moment that the young Brig lost his virginity, which is perhaps not a detail we needed to know. The Brig has an improbable and oddly written romance with a Greek islander before experiencing complications on his way to a looming war with Albania, although when faced with seduction by Sefi, Letts writes that Alistair would have sold the soul that he was not quite sure he possessed to the devil he definitely did not believe in and considered it a bargain, end quote. And then Alistair and Sefi do the deed, off screen, thankfully. Chapter 4 makes a bizarre allusion to the brigadier snorting a line of cocaine, although fortunately this is not something that actually happens. We learn that Demeter, Sefi, and Hermie are actually Greek gods via clumsy expository dialogue. They are an earthly race of superior humans who have played at being all sorts of gods, and Sefi, that's short for Persephone, gets abducted by Hades, again. Chapter 5 contains more of Hermes' stories of the Greek gods, including Persephone's fate and his need to get Alistair to help him get to Albania so the two men can enter the underworld via a portal. There's more Royal Navy comedy of manners as we continue with the autobiographical portion of Letts' war years. Remember, Letts was 78 years old when this book was published, and he'd been a sub-lieutenant in the Royal Navy during the war. Chapter 6 sees the Brig and Hermie conspire on a secret mission to rescue Sefi during an interlude set in Corfu and a cricket match, the latter of which I suspect was written so Let's could work in an awful pun on the phrase, it's not cricket. The Brig considers whether or not Hermes' lack of scruples is, quote-unquote, because he suffered from the undeniable disadvantage of not being British, although Hermes also admits to being a fan of Frank Sinatra, so score one for Hermes. In Chapter 7, as the recon mission begins, there are several decoys and bits of subterfuge planned by a British admiral, and the brig and one of his men make a surprising discovery near an enemy camp. 
In Chapter 8, the brig and his man, that's Corporal Clark, are captured by a Yugoslav officer in the Albanian soldiers' camp that are slated to be executed as spies. Hermes descends to the underworld in preparation for the brig's expected arrival there. In Chapter 9, Hermes visits Persephone, now in Hades, and advises her that he's going to use the brig to engineer an escape. He then tries to break the brig and Clark out of the van where they're being held captive. Chapter 10 contains dialogue taken directly from Colony in Space, a Malcolm Hulk story produced by Letts and script edited by Terence Dix, with Hermes and the brig standing in for identical dialogue between the Doctor and Miss Joe Grant. inside than out. Yes. That's because the TARDIS is dimensionally transcendental. What does that mean? It means that it's bigger inside than out. Now then. Let's, by the way, has the Brigadier reflect that this exchange is, quote-unquote, more sci-fi gobbledygook. But the narrative does contain some cinematic time jumps and flashbacks. After the van breakout, Clark is left behind, the brig tries to swim across the river Styx and punches out a hydra, but Hermes pays Charon to ferry them across more easily. Sephi uses her feminine wiles to track her jailer and escape her cage, but Hades is waiting for her as she turns the corner. In Chapter 11, while trying to find Sephi in the underworld, the brig learns that Hades is masquerading as the Yugoslav Colonel Nikolevich, seen earlier and has been using psychic energy to simulate attacks on Albanian troops. Hades is also meeting with several other international generals to stage manage a World War III that would give him the opportunity to conquer Earth. In Chapter 12, Letz's tongue gets so far lost in his own cheek that they probably still haven't found the darn thing. Sefi, he writes, not having been schooled in the gentlemanly arts, had found a far simpler way of coping which was perfectly suited to the anatomical grandiosities for which satyrs are renowned. A precisely placed knee, a grab and a twist, and both her former tormentors were doubled up, gasping, clutching gainly at their damaged pride. Ouch. In Chapter 13, Hades foils the Briggs and Cephe's escape attempt and is about to kill them, slowly, but gloats just long enough for Hermes to arrive with an angry mob of tormented souls who apparently kill Hades, of course, in chapter 14, we learn that Hades is not dead, and he in fact attempts to destroy the brig's motor launch, with the brig and Cephe and Hermes inside, but is instead banished by Poseidon, ex machina. In chapter 15, the men of ML951 forget the incident, thanks to convenient waters from a particular river, and so does the brig, age 21, after another two-week romantic interlude with Cephe. And that ends the brig's portion of the book. Now, sometimes it's just a relief to read a straightforward two-handed action-adventure piece, and that's all Deadly Reunion wants to be. Most PDAs were aspiring to greater heights than that. If you look at the two PDAs published right before Deadly Reunion, Loving the Alien and Wolfsbane, well, my reviews of those books are available on the ratings guide, and let's just say that it's a relief to read something this um, straightforward. And then comes Terence Dix's half of the book, 
it struck me quickly on that what Dix was writing was two things. First, the novelization of a never-produced prequel to the demons. Second, the parody of the worst of the previous PDAs with over-the-top violence. Bar fights, headless corpses, lots of drugs. On the one hand, you could say this was Terrence trying but utterly failing to write grown-up material. On the other hand, I think it's more fair to say that Dix was, as he does best, commenting sardonically on what other authors in the line had been doing. The gratuitous violence is bad as Dix writes it, because it's bad when almost anyone writes it in a Doctor Who book. And one could be forgiven, listening to the audio commentaries on the DVD sets, that Dix was Doctor Who's resident production office Tory, then there are lots of gratuitous shots at hippies and pop culture. Although other writings of Dix leads me to believe he might not have been as Tory as he occasionally sounded. The plot in Dix's half of the book involves a sinister supernatural entity infiltrating a hippie cult, and Dix fails to portray any single hippie in a good light. This book is written in a headspace where even the doctor doesn't sympathize with hippies, which is a bit odd for someone who later script-edited the back half of The Green Death. Dix's knack for recycling his own work is well known, but it's not as prevalent here as in a book like World Game, my Amazon review for which is titled Again with the Vampires, or, heaven forbid, The Eight Doctors. Dix does borrow Robert Holmes's quote, Sleep is for Tortoises, and the book is very redolent, as I've said, of the demons, which Dix didn't even write. There's a lot of spot the reference going on, but the dialogue for Doctor and Joe and the unit regulars and one particular humanoid villain, are all era-appropriate and spot-on. Pertwee's doctor gets several memorable confrontations with officious authority figures and several of his own patented moments of charm. The best parts of the Pertwee era for me were when the actors' mutual love and respect for each other shone through the material, as in Katie Manning's palpable joy and glee when Roger Delgado finally shows up in Frontier in Space. And this book has that in spades. Benton is particularly so competent that I almost forgot what it was like to meet John Levine in real life. Of course, more negatives. The overall plot linking both halves of the book is a bit basic. It's the Greek gods, still alive in 20th century Earth, first in 1946 in the Briggs segments, and then in the swinging 70s in the Dix chapters. Each half of the book ends with literal deus ex machina, because, did I mention, Greek gods? So, this isn't groundbreaking fiction but the storytelling propels the narrative, and the two authors clearly love what they're doing. Dix and Letts don't write as eloquently as other authors in the line, but their nostalgia is exactly what they're trying to do, and that's just about enough to make the book one of the more enjoyable PDAs of the year 2003 run. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found on Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. Then you can also find me on the Trap One Podcast. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, suggestions. Next time... Resuming our look at the target novelizations, we'll be discussing Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion, published in 1974. Thank you for listening, and keep turning the pages.